Danielle Hartman is the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, a Jewish research and educational institute based in Jerusalem, Israel, that offers pluralistic Jewish thought and education to scholars, rabbis, educators, and Jewish community leaders in Israel and North America. He's the author of three books, The Boundaries of Judaism, Putting God Second, and the upcoming Who Are the Jews? Danielle and I sat down in the podcast studio at the Hardman Institute in Jerusalem to discuss the role of Israel and Jews in the diaspora, the Kotel Compromise, democracy in the state of Israel, the occupation, the role of the Holocaust in Jewish identity, and much more. I'm Barack Holman, the author of Figure It Out When You Get There, a memoir of stories about living life first and watching how everything falls into place, and a shtickle shalom, a student, his mentor, and their unconventional conversations. And this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. We're here sitting in this beautiful place, really. Whoever did the architecture here, it's beautiful. Thank you. What problem does the Hardman Institute solve? A search for meaning and a search for decency. So it's, it's a journey. I believe that our core responsibility as Jews is to live meaningful and decent lives. And our challenge at the Hartman Institute is to try to understand what that means for 20th, 21st century Jews, for Jews who don't agree about, with, about their Judaism, for Jews who are asking questions way beyond questions that were asked before, where the heretical imperative, where it's, it's a core of who we are is to ask, how do you create a Judaism of meaning, whether it's in Israel or North America? And then how do we create a Judaism of decency? You know, our tradition teaches us Derech Eretz Kadmala Torah, which very often is interpreted as the way you treat other people should come before Torah. And for me, Derech Eretz is Torah. That's what Torah is about. Torah is about uh, who you are as a person, whether it's an individual, whether it's a community, whether it's Israel as a country. These are the questions we're trying to answer. We're trying to answer them intellectually. We're trying to develop thought, books, curriculum. And then we try to deliver it to key change agents in the Jewish world who can deliver it to the masses of our people. And so I don't know if the Institute is trying to solve a problem. It's trying to fulfill an aspiration. And you're saying the aspiration is to find meaning. Meaning in, meaning in our Jewish lives and decency in our behavior. Actually, I have a question that I was going to ask you further on, but now it seems relevant. What does it mean to be a Jew in a post-ethnic, post-religious world? Because that seems to be what you're saying to me. And nobody knows. No one knows. Nobody knows. You know, it's going to mean a lot of different things. Part of what you need to do and, and to understand, I get frightened of it from anybody who has the answers to such meta-huge questions. You have the privilege to participate in providing a part of the answers that some Jews will be able to use in their journey. So what does it mean? At first, it's important to know what it doesn't mean. In this world, what is it, post-ethnic, post-religious universe, there are no oughts. And I apologize for my Canadian um, accent. Maybe people know oughts. Or, there are no oughts. There are no givens. I mean, ought to be. Ought to be. Mm. There are no givens. There are no has to be. There is no it was. You have to really compete. You have to inspire. That's what the search for meaning is. When you give multiple answers, different people will resonate. And they're not about what people have to do. It's about 
sharing with people what makes your religious life meaningful Mm -hmm. and having a lot of different people engage in that. And then different people will resonate to different types of answers. So like in, in my own religious life, the world of Kabbalah and Hasidut is one that I never resonated to personally. I don't know whether it's my mind or or I'm not wired, or maybe I'm not, I have too many controls to allow myself to be to wired. It's not. Hmm. A big part of my life with God is a struggle to understand and to think about God in ways that are morally and intellectually compelling. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about God, for some people, it's like, really? Like this is God? But for other people, they're also searching for a certain type of a relationship. So meaning, you know, our tradition, our people are different. Mm-hmm. We need lots of different types of answers. So there isn't, it's about bearing witness to what you find meaningful without claiming superiority, without claiming certainty, without claiming obligation. And it's about inspiring. Is there certainty in Judaism? Is there obligation in Judaism? There is obligation. Mm. The obligation in Judaism is the obligation to be obligated by something. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, beyond that? No. What, what is the obligation to be obligated by something? It's to believe that Judaism demands of you something, that our tradition wants you to come into this world and ask the question, what does it mean to be a mamlechet kohanim and a goy kadosh? What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Holiness is one of those strange terms in our tradition. No one knows what it means. But we know what it doesn't mean. It means that to be a Jew is to be the enemy of mediocrity. That Judaism wants of you to be more. Just wants of you more in your life. And so I don't have a notion of how many mitzvot or commandments a person should do or not do. It's that Judaism is a system that looks at you and says, are you ready to do more? It could be more ethically. It could be more ritually. I don't have systems of better or worse Jews whose denominations are more more authentic. All that language is just, I never found meaning in it. But to be a Jew is to recognize that Torah and mitzvot obligate you and and be engaged by them. Now, how much and which part? That's what I mean. So, of course, there's obligations. It's the obligation to be obligated. You know who said this most beautifully for me when when I saw this? I'm sure in your own life, there's different moments where you meet an idea or something which which becomes a permanent, it's like, wow, this is my Judaism. The Rambam in his commentary on the Mishnah, at the end of uh, Tractate Makot, there's a Mishnah which says that God created multiple commandments because God wanted to, the term in Hebrew was lizakot. Um, and so there's different translation. God wanted, let's say, to, to benefit the Jewish people. That's why he gave them 613 commandments. Mm-hmm. So my money's asked, what does that mean? And he says that the purpose of 613 commandments is that it's impossible that an individual can't find one commandment that will be the one that they do completely and that they will do with a total devotion and love to God. And when you do that, then you basically warrant a place in the world to come. In other words, it's not about the quantity. So much of the denominational divides in Jewish life are people giving lists of the quantity that makes up you know, the good Jew. The, what's your 10? What's your 13? We all have numbers. You know, how many, how much do you have to do? Notice it's not that. The, the breadth and totality of Torah is giving you multiple opportunities to transform your life into a life of greatness and meaning. And so, the, for me, the obligation is to be obligated. So you wrote your PhD dissertation 
the boundaries of Judaism. Yes. Basically, the boundaries of halacha. Um, close. It's what are the lines that can't be crossed. Well, I actually remember asking you when we were when we met five years ago, and you said to me, I don't know how it came up that my daughter, who was davening mincha, and you said, what if the sun is setting and you're not really sure if the sun is completely set or not set, can she still daven mincha? That was the example I don't I remember. remember. I don't remember. That was I, the example you That's, that's the example I, I gave? That was what you asked me. You said, what would you tell her? Oh, wow. And I said, I would tell her as long as there was a tiny bit of light somewhere in the sky, daven mincha. <laughs> And I think you, I'm just recalling, I might not be recalling exactly correct, but you said to me, you see there, there's a fine, like there's a gray area. And you said to me, that's the area I'm interested in. Right. That was the example I remember you gave. What's so nice, you know, as we get older, we don't even remember what we said. (laughs) So life is constantly interesting. I quoted Yossi Klein Alevi from a a lecture he gave like three months before. He's like, who said that? Who said that? (laughs) My question is, can Judaism be passed down from generation to generation without halacha? No, but what does halacha mean? See, these terms are terms that are... Wait, are you going to say halacha as being a mensch? No. Because you did mention Derech in the beginning. Halacha means walking. That's what it means. Moving forward. Moving forward. Progressing. Progressing. Can Judaism be passed down without ideas about how you move forward, how you're obligated? No. But is halacha a fixed system that's closed, that needs to be kept? No. Wait, there's a Shulchan Aruch. That's right. The Shulchan Aruch is halacha. It's just laid out for us. One, that's, two, that's three, That's his four. opinion of halacha. That's the general opinion of the Jewish religion, isn't it? The Jewish religion? The Jewish religion, yes. The Torah is given at Sinai with halachot. No, I see you. We have a different Judaism, you and I. Ah. And that's fair enough. Yeah. I believe the Shulchan Aruch represents one aspect of Judaism. I think Jews throughout in the Torah, Jews throughout the ages, had a very marginal relationship with halacha. Um, if you look in the Gemara, for example, what is the average Jew called? What is Joe Shmo called or, or Moshe Beryl called in the, in the Gemara? Do you remember the term? He's ca- no, he's called Amaaretz. Amaaretz. The person of the land. And what is Amaaretz in the rabbis? An ignoramus. A person who doesn't know and a person who also doesn't keep. A rabbi can eat in their house. They don't keep a lot of halachot. Mm, it was a different time. Again, no, but I'm, I'm, I appreciate that. I'm not, I, I appreciate, I'm just trying to shape with you to, to share that. I know that there came to develop a theory which then gave birth to orthodoxy over a certain small period of time in Jewish history, where as if there was a standard, a fixed, a fixed table that everybody yeah. has to fit into. I don't find that, that that's not the Judaism that I know. That's a part of the Judaism that I know, but it doesn't define Judaism doesn't define the category of halacha, and it doesn't define what a Jew has to do. That a Jew could be orthodox, conservative, reform, and secular, and be equally authentic, meaningful, and good Jews. I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, really, my question is, see, I grew up in the reform movement, and at 17, I met the Lubavitcher Rebbe, really. That was what changed my life. It shocked me. And that brought me to going to Chabad houses and eventually learning about halacha. And I felt like the reform movement with, and I have a lot of hakaratato for the reform movement. I mentioned the last podcast. I think they're really, really good, beautiful, passionate people. But you can't make Judaism work without obligating people to follow alachot, to follow mitzvot. I appreciate that you feel that way. And I know it might be a little frustrating. And I, I, for you, that is true. The only thing I would caution you yeah. is to ask whether that is truth for others. I don't have a problem with that. 
For you, that is true. My question is, how do I have great-grandchildren that are Jewish in a world where people love Jews, especially in America? They want to marry Jews. They're the most popular minority. Right. TV shows about Jews and movies about Jews. The moment I decided I'm not dating non-Jews anymore was the moment that I knew that I would have Jewish children, halachically have Jewish children. But if I wasn't obligated to that, I had no problem dating non-Jews. I would have happily married a non-Jew. And maybe one day I would have realized my children or my grandchildren are not considered Jewish. In the Reformed Temple, they'd be considered Jewish, but not in the Orthodox community, not according to halacha. My question is, is there any way to pass down Judaism without that obligation? Again, without a sense of an obligation to an obligation? I believe not. That term confuses me, I have to tell you. I know, because it's not what you're used to. It's a paradox. It's not. It's that Judaism has to involve obligations without coming up with a list as to what those definitive obligations are. Then how do you know what to do? You don't. Even you don't. So then everybody's lost. No. I do know a lot of things that I'm supposed to do. No, you followed. You what do you do? You you follow someone. So, what somebody told you to do. You're making your choices. Someone that I trust. Great. So someone else follows somebody someone that else. I believe had a higher spiritual connection. Great. Than and me. if someone doesn't believe that, and someone doesn't, I, tr- I don't have any problem with that. I know you don't. So what happens is, is that we're wired very, very differently, and our way to God and our way to Judaism You're saying is going. You and I. Not even you and I. We as the Jewish Just people. Just in general. In general, you and I might have greater affinities. Doesn't really matter. When I look and, and I engage and I think about your Judaism, yeah. All I can think about, like I look at you, there's there's a joy, a simcha, a sense of of purpose, meaning, and excellence that, that emanates. I read bodies. That you're good em- at giving compliments. No, that I mean, you're like a good person. There's something really good about you. There's something like again, you don't even it's just I feel it. I, I feel your aura. You're at home. All I want to do is respect that. I want to respect it. I want to appreciate it. I want to comment on it. But from there to say that's who I, Daniil, should be, or that's who another person should be, that's the move I don't make. Now you're right. Today, Jews are making choices which Jews in the past didn't make, principally because anti-Semitism didn't allow us to make them. Mm-hmm. As you said, we're the most, why is there intermarriage in the United States? Because we're beloved. Prior generations, non-Jews wouldn't marry Jews. Right. <laughs> like, like, what would you? Why would you want to marry? I joke about it, but it's like one of my lines. You know, why would you want to marry a Jew to check out a pogrom? Like, what would be your incentive? So right. that's right. So there's a new reality. It's not a reality that the reform movement created, or that conservative movement created. It's a it's a reality that a decline of anti-Semitism and the North American phenomena created. Just like in Israel, there's another. It created it. So how do we respond? Now, within that context, 80, 90% are not going to pick orthodoxy. If that's not the path that they're going to choose to embrace for their Jewish life. The question is, how do we, for them, engage in a Judaism that they will find compelling? Okay, now, will now, the test of whether your children or grandchildren will be Jewish, I think it's an unfair test, frankly, because part of the reality is that we're all Jews by choice, and you can't control the choices of your grandchildren and until 10 years ago, 60% of those Jews who grew up as Orthodox didn't stay Orthodox. Doesn't surprise me. Until 10 years ago. Now, probably because of the trips to Israel and the year, the Shana, this year in Israel, things have changed. So was Orthodoxy a guarantee to have grandchildren that are Jewish? No, no, I'm not, not saying it's guaranteed. Who were the but... greatest moments of assimilation in Jewish? What was the greatest assimilation in Jewish history at the beginning of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century? were assimilation out of orthodoxy. 
that's where they were. So now, what I would have said back then, oh, orthodoxy is the most well, dangerous there thing. There was only orthodoxy back Not then. Not true. What are you talking about? In the 18th century? I said 19th. Okay. I thought you said 18th I said and 19th, 19th century. I said 19th and 20th. <clears throat> you know what? Maybe I did. So let me say the 19th and 20th century. Okay. There wasn't. There were secular Jews. There were foreign Jews. There were conservatives. There were secular There were lots of different types of Jews. I, wa- I want to continue on. I know Go. we could talk about this for a long time. Go. I actually had seven pages of questions Oh, my you. God. And I had to narrow it down. I narrowed it down to 10, but we've only done two. We gotta get moving. Are Jews in America in the diaspora? And if not, why should they care about Israel? Jews in America and Canada are- okay, it was in North America. North America. This is my Canadian- Of course, roots. this is the Hartman Institute. This also, is my Canadian roots. You can't leave them out. Yeah, I don't leave any. I try- God's frozen people, language, as my friend says. <laughs> God's frozen people. I love that. I try as much as I can to- speak in a way in ways that respect as many people as possible. Okay. And when you and can, that's just like a thing of mine. And Canadian Jews, as we Canadians know, are very sensitive when we're called American. I think the unique feature of mid twentieth century um Jewish life and onwards is that Jews are at home in North America. When the Zionist movement started, two hundred thousand Jews moved to Israel. That's it. A million and a half moved to North America. The Jewish people chose for their solution to the problem of Jewish life in Europe, America over Israel. And they created in America a home. Took mm-hmm. them a while. There was a lot of anti-Semitism, but it took, there was something inherent in North America that enabled multiple identities and multiple religious and national and ethnic um, identities to merge in a way that in Christian Europe, that was never possible. And when they <laughs> moved to America, they, uh, and Canada, they found a home there. So Jews in North America are at home. Now the question we face, and this is part of our challenge, is Zionism says there's one homeland to the Jewish people. And everybody and doesn't has, the Jewish religion say there's one homeland for the Jewish people? Not just Zionism? Again, your your use of the term the Jewish religion is one that I find personally challenging because it's not my oh, language. That's so interesting. Okay. It's, it's just, it's okay. And I'm not trying yeah. to change you and I'm not trying to argue. I'm just, I'm resisting because it's not my language. But didn't we leave Egypt in order to come to the land of Israel? That's true. But and then the we miracles were, in the desert but, but, stopped when we came here. That's, but then we... The temple uh, was built here. This is true. our history. Then we, but then we moved. Things have evolved. Uh, and Jewish life evolved and developed also outside of Israel. Now, does Israel have a special place in our tradition? The answer is sure. Could a Jew come up with a Judaism which is not Israel-centered? Of course they can. Yeah. There's a lot of things they can do, and they do. But either way, the fact is, is that they're at home now. This is just a, this is a, a sociological fact. And usually, by the way, ideology mirrors sociology, <laughs> not the opposite. Our sociology doesn't follow our ideology. Our mm-hmm. ideology listen, fits the sociology. Yeah, listen, who, who more than Haredi Jews have difficulty with not the land of Israel, but the country of Israel, Medinat Yisrael, is the homeland of the Jewish people. So how paradoxical, how many Haredi Jews refuse to come here? So it just turns out that, it, that Jews could do a lot of things. But, but these Jews we have are, to mention that they do daven several times a day to be returned back I to the know, land of Israel. I know, but when you have a Messiah. They're not Zionists. But when you have a Messiah who tarries, functionally, they're building their homes in Brooklyn and in Muncie. Um, they are. They're not... They're not living on their, um, they're not like European Jewry who was sitting and waiting, who sent out a wedding, what was, who was the Rebbe who sent out an, a wedding invitation that my, Emir Tzashem, you I've know. I've seen several of those. You know, that my daughter and son are going to get married in Israel in, in one month's time. And if by then the Mashiach doesn't come, 
it'll still it'll be here in Lublin or whatever. Kinnis Ashluchim of the Lubavitcher Hasidim. Every year it's in Jerusalem, but a few days before they change it to Crown Heights. Beautiful. Okay. Same thing. So okay, but that listen, Chabad takes serious for them. Medinat Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael are very vital parts. So I accept that. Not every most Haredi groups don't share that same. I'm aware. I daven in a Haredi shul every morning. So like, there so, for three hours every morning, so, so, so I not, know it well. So it's like, so what Jews do is actually quite interesting. So, But my but, question so is, are the Jews in America, why should they care about Israel That's if they're good, at home? Now, why can't I have more than one home? Why? Because it's not natural. Really? Yeah, I only have one home. I don't. I have, when I come to my mother's house, I'm at home. I don't, I don't knock. My mother's in Miami. Ah, see, so I, <laughs> this is regular. I have my children's home. We don't only have one home. We have lo- when we're a family, we have lots of homes. And part of what happened is that there is, there might have been a historical home, but it's like we grew up, we got married, and we, and whether it's till the Mashiach comes or not, in fact, we live in multiple homes and we have complex relationships with them. But not the same. You have to visit the home in order for it to be a second home. You do. That's true. And you so it's true. That's correct. We also know how dysfunctional so many families are. Oh yeah. (laughs) So so there's lots of levels of dysfunctionality. But Jews could have a special relationship with Israel while feeling that they are at home in North America. Of North America. And part of the challenge is that when you predicate a relationship with Israel on Israel's primacy, you're setting yourself up for failure and worse, self righteousness. Because this is what gets me the worst. Most. I'm the self You know, only those like me who have, I'm not talking about you, only people like me who have the halacha, who are going to have guarantee that their grand, we know that our grandchildren, our Jewish, we're the ones who accept Israel. We're the ones. No. There's a lot of, like, give Jews a break. Let's not judge them I'm all the time. I'm familiar with that. I'm very familiar with that. And I'll just tell you, those people, it just makes their life easy. They don't want to think. Now, that's not good. it's not a good thing. But they're no better than a Jew that doesn't care about Judaism or the, or the land of Israel, the state of Israel. They're the same thing. They're just the opposite side of the coin. Right. So these Jews, the fact is most Jews, and that's our challenge, most Jews around the world are at home. Where they live. Where mean. they live. Mm-hmm. But aren't most people in the world at home where they live? Right. But for Jews, for many years, we weren't because anti-Semitism never enabled. We were always the outside. And now things have changed. We have two major countries that we, we can two, be at home That at. we really can. Yeah. And with all the anti-Semitism now, that's bo- great. In both places for now. That's right. That's also worthwhile remembering. And with all the anti-Semitism that's increasing in America, principally in, in, in the United States, some in Canada, Jews aren't selling real estate. Uh, you know, one of the signs when you have existential anti-Semitism, Jews in Europe didn't own real estate. <laughs> and they had diamonds and they had gold. Di- you had what's known as metaltaline. You had things that move mm. quickly when you got to move. Mm-hmm. Jews in America, okay, we're, it's, we have a problem with our home. It didn't stop it from being our home. But that means that Israel also has to work much harder if it wants to lay claim, just like Judaism. If I want to lay claim to the heart of a Jew who doesn't have to be Jewish, who can be a lot of other things, if I want to lay claim to Israel being important, it has to be a place of meaning and vitality and inspiration. So now you're bringing me to my next question, which is the Kotel, which is really symbolic. I think for Israelis, for the most part, they really don't care about the Kotel ever. They don't go to the Kotel. Correct. I go to the Kotel once a year on my birthday, and that's just to make myself go to the Kotel. But for American Jews, at least the vocal American Jews and liberal American Jews, having this egalitarian prayer at the Kotel is a very big issue. And I feel like they're projecting 
their worldview on a different country, a different society that doesn't share that view. When Israelis vote, they vote on security, they vote on economics, they don't vote about rights at the Kotel. So I don't think the state of Israel can ever make American Jews happy because we have different needs. There's multiple facets to your question. Every question we can go on for a long time. We can go for a long time. I I, really thought beforehand I could have 10 episodes with you because I had so many things to discuss. um, Let's look at the, let's stick with the Kotel. Mm -hmm. The fact that most Israelis don't feel compelled to have an egalitarian Kotel is, I think, is an objective fact. I think any Kotel. I think most Israelis don't go to the Kotel. Kotel, period. That yeah. makes it even more yeah, yeah. interesting. Now, that's true. But who said that in the homeland of the Jewish people, the spiritual, emotional needs of Jews around the world shouldn't be taken into account, especially when it could be a win-win? Where does it get difficult? When there is a conflict and there's a zero-sum game, who has to win? Does an Israeli Jewish consciousness win or a North American Jewish consciousness win? And in life, you have to decide. And it's not easy. And when someone doesn't live in a country or vote in a country, it's hard to assume or to demand that your sensibilities override someone else's sensibilities. But in the case of the Kotel, a miracle occurred. It was like the Hanukkah miracle. We had a little bit of oil and it lasted eight days. The wall extended. Magic. (laughs) They discovered a more Kotel. We have enough Kotel. So I could appreciate that in one Kotel, how do we share one Kotel? That's a very, you know, and the Supreme Court thought about it and debated. And the question is whether the Kotel is a shul or not, or is it a national symbol? Problem is, the is that plaza it's- plaza at the Kotel, because the Kotel is no, the wall. I know, but the, right, the whole, the whole shebang, the whole space. And actually, the Supreme Court ruled that it's not a shul. The minority opinion said it's a shul. And as a shul, it's governed by the rabbinate. They said, no, the Kotel's not another shul. It belongs to the whole Jewish people. And as a result, they were trying to struggle with how to create diversity here. And they kept on, because they knew they didn't want to legislate, they kept on saying, build a commission, build a commission. And then finally, when the commission came and they discovered, and the solution was, we discovered more Kotel, here it could be. This one benefits and this one is not, lose, is not losing lacking. it, is yeah. not lacking. So in this case, if we ask ourselves, we want Jews to feel that Israel is also their home. Don't we have to create spaces for people to feel that I see you, I respect you? So if you're saying you're taking my Kotel, I could appreciate it. But there's another Kotel. There's room. Okay, so they built an egalitarian no, section. No, they didn't. The Char- they did not. Why? You've no. been there. I've been there. I know. How did you get there? That wasn't the egalitarian section. That is a ghetto. They built there a fakakta ghetto with rickety planks. You have to go around. It's like you're going through the secret. It doesn't even look like a, you're going through the Davidson uh, archaeological digs to climb up and to go around. Come on. That's not the Kotel. There was a very simple Kotel deal, which Netanyahu and the religious Zionist community all advocated for, and the Haredi community quietly acquiesced. And then it became, do you know what? Kula Sheli. Everything has to be mine. Too much of politics in Israel. Do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me, and again, I don't mean to insult anybody. It reminds me of dogs urinating, marking their territory. Politics in Israel. It's yeah. politics in Israel. It's about... I mean, Winning. it's a dirty profession, politics. But it's about, it's about the acquiescence, it's about the acquiring of power and victory. What would it have mattered? Okay, I agree with you. We had four elections. What would have mattered if- Because well, people couldn't compromise. Well, exactly. It's the same thing. Yeah. What, what would have mattered if, there is a, if we have one entrance and there's a dignified egalitarian Kotel 
and a dignified Orthodox Kotel in which the conduct there is completely, each one has space. It's like in North America, do you know how many Orthodox Jews pass a reform or conservative shul every single day and never in their minds even assume that they have a right to comment, to delegitimize? No, of course not. It's a different What's life it? in America. You, you, the idea is, is that who you are, go to the shul you want. But if so we look at reality, so, but here in reality, it didn't work out. But here in Israel, we had that ability. So if you're asking me it didn't work out is one thing, but your question to me was not if it didn't, why it didn't work out. No. Your question to me was, shouldn't it not have worked out? And I'm saying to you, it should have. You're the it should one. have, but it didn't. That's because people were small. That's because you asked me, connected to your prior question, Yeah. how should people have a relationship with Israel? You want Israel people to feel Israel is their home? Earn it. Earn it. I don't think people want to earn it. No, so, no, not the Israelis. Israelis. I'm saying Israelis so, don't want to earn it. Okay, so that's where we have to do a tikkun. That's what we have to fix. And I don't think they want to fix it either. I think Fair that, enough. I think that some Israelis of, that's true. Some of them really... So that's our educational you know, I challenge. I listened to one of your talks once. I didn't write that here, but you said, you American Jews are trained to care about Israelis. You're raised and educated to care about Israelis. He said, I'll tell you something. Israelis don't care about you. That's right. So that's, And it's true. So when you ask... What is the mission of the Hartman Institute? Yes. Or the mission of other institutions? Our job is to create greater meaning and decency. And how do Israelis become more decent towards Jews who don't live here? That's a big project. Oh, I, my life? Because it's a big country. Oh. A lot of people, a lot of so, different opinions. That's why I have a very big institute. Yeah, I see. <laughs> that's <laughs> a beautiful I a, studio. I have a lot of work to do. Is that the shame? So who says? I didn't, pick, I didn't pick an easy life. I picked a meaningful life. What's more important for the state of Israel, to be more Jewish or more democratic? In an Israel that's less democratic is less Jewish. What do you think for Israelis is more important? I think they're split. If push came to shove, they had to give up more democracy in order to remain more Jewish. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell because what they understand as democracy and what they understand as Jewishness is very complicated. I think most Israelis don't know what democracy is. And they, they don't know what countries Jew- where there was and they don't democracy. know what and they don't know what Jewishness is. Hmm. So if you say to an Israeli, for example, it's a very laden question, but let's no, that's let's, the point. Let's look at the last election. For for some, being more Jewish means a place that Jews are safe. Okay. So if they're asking, what's more important that is be a place where Jews could be safe or be a place that is fastidious in its protection of human rights? They will choose a place that Jews are safe. And wouldn't every person choose that for themselves? I agree. I'm, okay. not, crit- I'm not critiquing. Right. They had these crazy protests in America of defunding the police. Yeah, and then the wealthy a- neighborhoods were all robbed. <laughs> it's, again, I have so much stories here. I'm not even going to comment on what's over there. <laughs> but if Jewishness in Israel is halakha or orthodox halakha, I think the majority of Israelis would want it to be more democratic. Mm-hmm. But part of what happens in this last coalition, this governing coalition, is you have both notions of Jewishness coalescing. You have the Jewishness motivated by the politics of fear, who's going to protect me better? And then who's going to protect Judaism better? Different parties, but they Mm -hmm. all care more about Judaism. But the Jewishness of Israel is a very different Jewishness. And so you're right. Israelis very naturally believe that, and again, you know, Chief Justice Barak in a very famous court case of his, which involved, are you allowed to torture a terrorist at, um, if there's a ticking bomb? And he said, human rights only apply within a given society. 
And if that society is a dangerous danger, you cannot claim a human in a human right to endanger the society. And he was, this is this is the secular chief justice Aron Barak. Mm-hmm. And you and therefore we're allowed to torture, violate the human rights if at this moment the, the life and uh, life of of citizens of Israel is in, are in danger. It's every country. You know, our tradition says, you know, et la sot la shem, like there's moments where you have to do, and you have to violate the law. Pikuach nefesh comes, the saving of a life comes before the law. Similarly, when we go to war, I was, I went to war. I'm not allowed to kill people. At war, I killed people. I killed people. And you do so in the, hopefully in the context of self-defense because your life takes precedence. So that's right. At moments of danger, Human rights are secondary, and part of the reason why most Israelis aren't bothered by the occupation or calling it an occupation is that their analysis of what's happening in Judea and Samaria is pikuach nefesh. It's an analysis that our lives are in danger. Would I like the Palestinians to have a state, or would I like Palestinians to be treated? Sure, but our assessment is is that to do that will create dangers that are unacceptable, and so Jewish versus democracy is it. Survival is a very natural thing, and it's even, and in our tradition, it's a moral obligation, and it's part of the democratic principles. Democracy doesn't require, or a commitment to human rights doesn't require that you forget your inalienable human right to live. But so there, so-called Judaism wins. But when it comes to halacha, the vast majority of Israelis, 60-something percent, want greater freedom when it comes to the rabbinate, marriages, Shabbat. They would rather have more democracy than Jewishness in yeah. the public sphere. So the whole question is is a much more complicated one. But at the end of the day, I believe that democracy has become an integral part of our tradition. My Judaism believes that democracy is the ideal form of government. And an Israel that doesn't protect human rights, an Israel that doesn't advocate for the equality of all human beings and their right to justice, is a less dem- is a less Jewish state. Right, because we're coming from the definition that you gave at the beginning about Judaism is bringing you to be a mensch, essentially. That's correct. So you mentioned the occupation, which is the next question I had. Oh. You want to end the occupation. When we say occupation, that's a loaded term. I'm using our friend Yossi Kleinalevi, who says that the land is not occupied, the people are occupied. And uh, there's all kinds of crazy people in this country. But I think for the most part, if Canada was our neighbor, we would want to have a Canadian state next to the Jewish state of Israel. That's correct. But we have a group of people who won't accept any offer we've given them. You know, the second intifada came as a response to what we Israelis call a generous offer. Ehud Olmert went even further, and it was rejected as well. So how are we supposed to end the occupation? Nobody knows. So we have to make a distinction. The fact that I want, you you opened by saying something very strong, and that a lot of people contest, by the way. But I agree with you, that if we felt that we can live in peace and security, most Israelis would like for the Palestinians to have their own space. Israelis don't want to occupy another people. There isn't this power hungriness. There are some where power has become idolatry. And there are some for whom any compromise over the land is the ultimate violation of Jewish law. But using your language, if we could have, that would be an ideal form. That means that the sacredness of the land and our aspiration for for control, are secondary to our desire to live in peace. Peace. And peace will require compromises. But that's not our reality. And it's not like we didn't try. I agree that too. So the question then is, because we didn't succeed, do you try again or not? Maybe. 
Now, trying means if there's an opportunity, so, but, but not to push it immaturely. So, no, oh, doesn't I'm not pushing anything. No, but I'm sometimes saying. you create your own opportunities. Try. Do you do things that will make that opportunity impossible? So, for example, do you try to keep most settlements in the settlement blocks, which are going to stay in Israel in any event? Or do you create as many settlements as possible closer to Palestinian towns that will make it impossible if the time ever comes? Mm-hmm. Now, again, right now, that's why if we look at the last government, how is it that the far left and Bennett could sit in a coalition together? Because even the far left knew that right now, a two-state solution, peace, it's, it's not on the table, not because we don't want it to be, but because we don't think it's possible. Mm-hmm. And in the Middle East, being Yossi Levy likes to, Yossi Klein Levy likes to attack, you can't be naive. But in the Middle East, it's not being naive. You can't be um, utopian. Because utopian have a people. a quote from you. It's very, very hard to be a liberal humanist when people are trying to kill you. Exactly. It's very hard. And, you sh- and the truth is, you shouldn't be. So it's right. I, I'm very comfortable right now pursuing a peace that I know can't happen. But how do you do that? Right now, I don't believe. Without endangering lives. Correct. Pursuing peace doesn't mean endangering lives. Giving up land does. No, I didn't say giving up land. I'm very precise in my language. Many people associate peace with land for peace. I appreciate that. I know what a lot of people associate with, and that's part of the problem. Two-state solution means giving up land in order to get peace in in return. That's correct, but we want to get what in return? Peace. Peace. So if peace is not possible right now, I'm not giving up any land. But what I wouldn't do is I would significantly restrict settlement building outside of the settlement blocks. I would create high taxation for anybody who wants to live in a settlement outside of the settlement blocks. I would create high tax benefits for anybody who lives outside of settlement blocks to move to settlement blocks. I would create the space where if peace happens, we'll be ready. Right now, we're not, we're not talking about it. There's a difference between, you know, our tradition says you have to pursue peace. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say you have to make peace. It says you have to pursue peace. Mm-hmm. And you pursue it precisely when it's not there. Your job is not to harvest peace. Your job is to pursue peace. There's two mitzvot that we have to pursue, justice and peace. And it's, they're different because it's, they're not something that when the time comes, you should be, no, you have to create the time. So we have to ask ourselves as a people, how do we do that? So no, nobody in Israel, there's, a fair, there's like maybe 3% of Israeli Jews believe that if we would just leave the territories, everything would be wonderful. We all know, most of us, we've learned. Mm-hmm. I used to be for unilateral withdrawal. After Gaza, I'm against unilateral withdrawal. I'm the same, by the way. I'm against it. I was a big left-winger before Gaza. I'm against it. I'm still left-wing. I'm not anymore. That changed my mind. The Intifada, really. The second Intifada. I'm still left-wing. I just redefined the category. (laughs) You redefined my understanding of Judaism. Exactly. It's just, what is left-wing? Left-wing is somebody who believes that um, peace is an obligation. That peace is more sacred for our for Judaism than land, and that I'm willing to compromise land for the sake of peace. But when peace is not on the table, I'm not going anywhere. Got it. I'm not going anywhere. But I think when something is of value, it's like, you know, you know, look at Shabbos. What are you supposed to do in order to make Shabbos important? You're supposed to prepare for it. That's the song in Gan. Yeah. You know? Whoever prepared for Shabbos will have Shabbos. We'll have if Shabbos. Shabbos doesn't, what are they going to have? What are they going to have? But it's true. We know that in our lives. Mm-hmm. It's not miracles. So peace is the same thing. Prepare for it. Talk about it. It's an interesting Sing comparison. About it. Prepare for it. Doesn't mean So that, you're saying keep the flame alive. That's right. Yeah. Don't, that's, don't put it out. Don't put it out. 
But and equally, don't think that you're in that you're that you're talking to Canada. But the Palestinians kind of keep putting it out for us. That's Very, the feeling that I get. Yeah, it's true. They ma- it makes it hard yeah, for us. It's That's like true. Attack after attack and it's murder true. after murder. Anytime you get that candle burning again, it's hard. It's like, Okay, so that's our challenge. Just keep relighting it. You know, the Jewish people for thousands of years, the amount that we suffered could have created a people who are immoral, corrupt towards us. That's just not who we became. To be a Jew is to live by your standards, regardless of the surroundings. Doesn't mean you want to kill yourself. I'm not committing suicide, because that's, to live is also a value. But again, to be a mensch, to look at, yes, there are outside between Judea and Samaria and Gaza, there's five million Palestinians. I want for them a life of dignity. I want them for a life, a life. Why of don't they want a life of I dignity? Don't know. That's, okay, that's a good question. But that's a question that they're going to have to ask. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that I don't want it. Of course, we all want it. No, we don't. I think we do. I think everybody. I wish we did, I my think, friend. I really do. I think you just have to peel off a few layers. That's true. Also, the the fear and all the anger. You know, I, as much as it's y- hidden so much. I used to say Yasser Arafat. I'm sure if we sat down with him, like we're sitting here in this room, he's a very nice person. But what he wanted to do in life was not nice. And so people, when people meet with people, you know, that's why these meetings with Palestinians and and terror victims and all these terrible things. And whenever you get the most extreme people, put them together, they can have a nice lunch together. I had that in the shuk. There was a guy that I was buying from I, forever. I buy. In, I always go to the Iraqi shuk. I live in Echlot. So the shuk is like my refrigerator. One, one day there was some, something on the Temple Mount. And I said to him, you know, you and I, were like peace in the Middle East. We're good friends. I even have his phone number. He invited me to his kids' weddings. I said, you know, we, we wouldn't have that problem on the Temple Mount. He says to me, you Jews have no right to this land. It's all a lie. I started calling him the anti-Semite. I still bought from the anti-Semite. <laughs> and we're still friends. Yeah, I don't but, know if you're friends, but yeah, he's an anti We're friendly. We're friendly. He is. There but is when, they, there but when very, his ideology there, came out, that's I was good. shocked. Yeah, there are serious anti-Semites that we, that's part of our, this, you know, the chosen land is not in a great neighborhood. <laughs> okay, well, nothing we can do about that. Okay, we're running short on time, so I've got to skip some questions, which is what I told you. I could have been, I could have done this for a long time. I'm going to ask you, I've got three more questions. Part of the reason that I made Aliyah is because I grew up with Holocaust survivors in South Florida. And for them, what, like what you said, America was the safest place to go. And, it, and they probably made the right choice as far as their physical life goes. America is a better place to live. Spiritual life, meaning I think it's better personally over here. I got tired of the Holocaust survivors making me feel guilty. Holocaust memorials, this whole Holocaust obsession. And I saw there's Jews over here in the land of Israel, in the state of Israel, that are passionately creating their own fate, and I wanted to be with them. What role should the Holocaust play in a Jewish identity? First, a very deep part of being a Jew is to see yourself as connected to a people who've been walking together for 3,000 years. You have no access to God in our tradition unless you are part of and committed to the Jewish people. That's a unique feature of Judaism very different from Christianity and Islam. The Jewish people actually precede Judaism in our tradition. To be a Jew, and you can't separate yourself from the Jewish people. So first, Holocaust happened to my people. I don't forget. I mourn. I remember the remarkable heroism of the people who came out of the Holocaust and had children. I look at them as the greatest heroes in Jewish history. Mm -hmm. If you ask me, what is the greatest heroic act in Jewish history? It's not the Maccabees. It's not in Tebi. Not at all. 
It's about people who came out literally from the valley of death and chose life. Very often as broken people, but they said, I'm going to choose life. So I want to mourn my mishpacha who died. It's like, you got, it's very important. I never want to forget them. Not to learn, just because, you know, it's like I, I have a brother-in-law who was killed in the first war in Lebanon. And uh, everybody's trying to give meaning. To, it's like, and I'm not looking for meaning in death. It's just I want to mourn life that was taken. And a people, an identity deeply connected to its people remembers. I want to celebrate and learn from the, the, the greatest heroes in Jewish history. Not the ones who built Israel, but the ones who built the life. That, I, I want to remember that. And, and from that, I, I, want, I want to be worthy of not the death of the people who, actually, who gave us what we have today and, and chose that. And if it wasn't for them, we would not be here. I don't, however, want to remain Jewish under the notion that the world will always hate me. I want to be part of a world. And so the Holocaust for me is, is critical for my Jewish life but not in the way for many people it is. I don't want to guilt people into being Jewish because your grandparents or great-grandparents were killed. Mm -hmm. We have much to learn from the Holocaust. I learn from the Holocaust. I don't live because of the Holocaust. I live despite the Holocaust. In many ways, the, the profound lesson of the Holocaust is that that did not define my people and my faith. And living despite it and growing from it are the secret. So like, for example, in Israel, we could have a story of Israel being a perpetual pre-Holocaust phenomenon. We're living in the Middle East in the midst of enemies, and we use the Holocaust always to speak about there's this imminent death, you know, and it constantly reminds us of our challenge here, never again, never again. Or the Holocaust could be a moment of mourning and a moment of inspiration of a people who chose to embrace life in the world, and that we also have to choose to embrace life in the world. The Holocaust itself, like most things, could either bring us high or bring us low. Mm. I choose the story of the Holocaust that brings us high. You know, when you leave Yad Vashem, you walk out into the living, breathing state That's of Israel. Correct. That's right. You leave the U.S. Holocaust Memorial, which is the museum that the Jews in America chose to build on the National Plaza. You don't have any Israel at the end. You just walk out and see America. That goes back to your home. That's part of the story. I asked Ruth Weiss about that in the podcast. She was on the committee. And she said, we made a mistake. She said, I told them at the time they were making a mistake. But it would be very hard to have changed that in the plaza of Washington. All you have to do is add one more room, Maybe. the big Israeli flag over the Temple Mount, you know, a picture of the Dome of the Rock, the Kotel. Could be. With the egalitarian section. Could, could be, I agree. And, you could. know, you have like a movie going, like in Disney World type thing. And Life. people say, wow, and, and a tikva's playing. I know it will probably never happen. Yeah. Okay. A quote from Avraham Yehoshua Heschel. Never once in my life did I ask God for success or wisdom or power or fame. I asked for wonder, and he gave it to me. So you started off the podcast, and you said Kabbalah and Hasidut I don't connect with. So where is your wonder in Judaism? My wonder comes from learning, from growing. My wonder comes from my encounter with my people. My wonder comes from moments where... I feel like there's certain moments where I look up at Hashem and I say, you know, I did good today. <laughs> it's like when you did something that helped somebody. You just, it's, unfair. it's a very small little thing. It's not even amount of how much you sacrificed or something. Like, oh, kola kavod, you did great. Nothing to do with. Those are my principal wonders. I have a class in the Kote Moan I've been giving for about seven years now. Every week I give it and when there was corona, nobody showed up. I still went to the classroom. <laughs> I, have, I do it online also, so people are watching online. 
you know, I told you I grew up before him. I became a Baal Tshuva through Chabad. And then I discovered it was really my rabbi who's passed away. He told me, you got to study Likutei Moran. There's so much wonder there. I never cease to find depth and wonder in the teachings of Rabbi Nachman. And I feel like, how could you not have found that yet? <laughs> I mean, you know it's there. You're first, a very intelligent I'm so guy. Young. I'm so, for me, I, for me my, 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 the three principal books that give me that sense of wonder is Torah, Gemara, and the Rambam. And I read them and read them and read them. And you know when I have the greatest, when I find it's something that I've learned hundreds of times and I found something new. That's like, that's my month, my year is transformed. Mm. And so those are my books. But what will be my book tomorrow? I don't know. I'm not, uh, okay. I'm 64, but I have time, God willing. Bezrat Hashem. Bezrat Hashem. Okay, so the last question Imagine you had a giant billboard that millions of Jews would stop and read a message for a few seconds. What message would you put on your billboard? Oh, there's different possibilities. You could put a few messages if you want. One, you are a good Jew. You are a good Jew. So many Jews are put down all the time. There are just so many people who think that they just put Jews down. You are a good Jew. I'm curious about that message because imagine somebody really isn't a good Jew. I don't know that. I don't know. You are. You Maybe are. you could say Hashem loves you. No. Or the Jewish I, see, people that's want you. you. That's you answering your billboard. Oh, mine for sure. I don't I even said, know what I put on my billboard. I said, you. I would say. Okay, you're a good Jew. You're a good Jew. And that when you see yourself as a good Jew, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You're not an empty vessel. You're not a failure. You're a good Jew. However you are and however you've chosen. There are so many. You're a good Jew. Hmm. The other thing I would maybe put is, be a player, not a spectator. Ah, that's what almost everybody says in one way or another. I would also say Everyone that. says that. When you're in education, that's what you try to do. Every class we teach, that's what it means to engage people. But I think that people will only be players if they feel they're good Jews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense, of course. And you know, and a lot of that, you know who does that more than anybody else? Chabad. Chabad looks at people, doesn't see what they don't have. They don't see what they're missing. They see what they have, and they celebrate who they are. And that's why people like to go to Chabad, because they don't feel guilty. And they, they feel loved. What are they, you know, what, are, what is Chabad's greatest power? Is that it makes Jews feel loved. And They're not creates, judgmental. And, not, and they create a space for them to be. And, and, and it's for real. It's not a shtick. It's not like, you know, right. it's not a, the, the, the people themselves, these are, you know, pluralism is not a philosophy. It's, merc- it's more a personality trait. <laughs> it's like when you look at the world and you see the positive and, and so, for me, you're a good Jew. And from that, become a player and not a spectator. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank this you. was really a pleasure. It was my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. That was Daniel Hartman, the president of the Shalom Hartman Institute here in Jerusalem, Israel. And I have to tell you, my sweetest friends, that was one of the most interesting and enjoyable conversations I've had yet on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as well. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy is sitting down with somebody who I completely disagree with and having a generous conversation with them. And if you stick around to the end, I'm going to share with you something. It was thanks to Danielle that I started my other podcast, The Hasidic Story Project. And here was our conversation before this podcast episode began. I want to start off by saying, giving you a great compliment. We met in your office, and I said to you, you know what, I think I want to work here. And you said to me, this was after like a half hour talk or something, you said to me, 
Well, we only hire the best of the best here at the Hartman Institute. What do you do better than anyone else in the whole world? I said, I tell Hasidic stories. And you said to me, well, that's very nice, but we don't need that here. (laughs) And I left here. I called my wife and I said, you know what? I'm starting a podcast of Hasidic stories. (laughs) And I have tens of thousands of listeners now. I have people that, it shocks me, but it's literally changed their lives. And you get the merit of asking the right question. Oh, wow. You asked me the question that started that podcast. I'm telling you, it's growing so fast, I can't even believe it. Wow. And then the second thing was this podcast here. I said, you know what? I enjoyed the conversation so much. I'm just going to go around and interview everybody who's really big in the Jewish world. And it became just fun for me. I'm not into sports. <laughs> Beautiful. And I, I don't know what else, but See, this is my fun. It's beautiful. There's new mediums in which you could teach and reach masses of people. Really is remarkable. So if you haven't started listening yet to the Hasidic Story Project, please take a look. You'll be joining tens of thousands of listeners from around the world. And make sure to check out my other episodes on Jewish People and Ideas. Every conversation is a gem. Every one of them has something special in it. Please make sure to listen to those. And if you know somebody who you think would enjoy this conversation, make sure you share it with them. You can also check out my books on Amazon. And thank you again, my sweetest friends, for listening. And I look forward to the next conversation on Jewish People and Ideas. 